0: I'm going to read our passage of scripture for us. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. And it's in the Pew Bibles on page 966. So if you don't have a Bible with you, you can get it there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The word of the Lord. Maybe may be seated. All right, so last week we restarted our sermon series in 2 Corinthians, and we looked at chapter 5, verses 17 through 19, 19, and God's ministry of reconciliation, looking at how God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself, removing the enmity or the hostility that stands between us and God. And so this morning, we're moving the sermon series forward, One verse. So this is going to take a while to get through 2 Corinthians, but now I wanted to uh, touch on this verse, and the more that I reflected on it, the more it seemed like it was going to require uh, a lot of explanation around some certain things. Now the kids might be saying, phew, just one verse, what a relief, this is going to be a short sermon, but no, this is not going to be a short sermon. In fact, I had a family chat planned for this morning, but this sermon got so long I had to cut the family chat just to get this sermon in. So just settle into your pews, kids, and... And be ready for a sermon. So, in verse 520, Paul tells the Corinthians to be reconciled to God. Indeed, he earnestly implores the Corinthians to be reconciled to God. But this verse raises an important and perhaps troubling question Aren't the Corinthians already reconciled to God? And if so, why is Paul imploring the Corinthians? to be reconciled to God. So that's the question that I want to tackle in our sermon this morning. Why is Paul imploring the Corinthians, who are already baptized believers in Jesus, to be reconciled to God? And what implications does that have for you and I? So finding the answer to our question here in verse 20 is going to require us to jump around to another uh, number of passages throughout the New Testament uh, in particular. And I'm also going to have to do a little bit of historical framing, again, the context in Corinth, and then uh, some theological work on understanding the doctrine of eternal security. And then third, we're going to do some uh, look at the practical relevance uh, of this uh, sermon for you and I. So now normally I like to sprinkle in my application kind of along the way at each point uh, to keep you interested, but the application is all being pushed to the end, right? So the last point is the application of the sermon. So just hold tight as we move these first two points. But we need to start with the historical context in Corinth. And we've talked about this in various points throughout our sermon series, but maybe you're new to the sermon series. And I haven't pressed the point I'm going to make quite as uh, explicitly in the past. So I want to say, uh, give us some more context here. So to put a point on it, Paul fears that the Corinthians, under the influence of the false teaching of the super-apostles, these false teachers that have come in after him, he fears that the Corinthians are in danger of apostasy. Now, for those who may be unfamiliar with the term apostasy, the term apostasy means to reject or abandon the faith. I was talking to someone after the first service, and she said, she said, I always thought apostasy was something about being an apostle, so that we were worried about, like, apostolizing, you know? And, no, it's not quite it, right? Apostasy... Means to reject or to abandon the faith. So Paul, along with Timothy, Titus, a few others, had planted the church in Corinth. And then Paul and his fellow ministers had stayed there for about a year and a half. And then they moved on to plant and start other churches in other parts of the region. And after Paul had left, some teachers from Jerusalem, some Jewish teachers who Paul then later refers to as the super apostles, came to Corinth and they took over Paul's ministry. They kind of presented them as Paul's successors. And these teachers were sophisticated, they were credentialed, and they were coming from Jerusalem. They presented themselves as Jerusalem-approved apostles. But regardless of how credentialed and sophisticated they were, they were teaching a false gospel that was undermining Paul's gospel. And these false teachers were telling the Corinthians that in order to become sharers in Christ, the Corinthians needed to be circumcised and to adopt Jewish ways and customs. They were saying, listen, Jesus is a Jew, and he is, of course, and he's the Jewish Messiah and he is, of course, and he's attested to in the Jewish law, and he is, and he's prophesied about by the Jewish prophets, and he is, and as such, Jesus wants you to find him in Judaism. So you Gentile people that want to follow Jesus, you have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. Now, there's more that could be said about this false gospel, but the more important point for our purposes this morning is that it was false. It denied the sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus. It prioritized earthly glory over heavenly glory, and it paved the way for a kind of works righteousness. And the false teaching of this of these Jewish super apostles, this was the plague of the first century church. So Paul had to battle against this false teaching, not just in the church in Corinth. He also had to battle it against it in the church that he planted In Galatia. That's what the letter of Galatians is all about. He's writing to them with the same basic concern. And the author of Hebrews, and traditionally uh, folks have thought in the past that that was written by Paul, we don't know for sure, but it also addresses this same basic heresy. The people that the author of Hebrews is writing to were thinking about uh, returning to Judaism. This was such a plague, in fact, that in Acts chapter 15, a council of all the elders, were called and they met in Jerusalem and they debated at length this question. Do the Gentiles, who have been traditionally outside the covenant of God's people, do they have to come into the Jewish covenant and become Jews in order to experience the salvation that is offered in Jesus? And after debate, they concluded that no, the Gentiles do not need to become Jews in order to come to Jesus. So that's why when Paul hears in the apostolic grapevine, as it were, that the church in Corinth has been influenced by these false teaching super apostles and that the Corinthians perhaps may be buying into it, he becomes afraid that they're about to apostatize and he immediately writes the letter of 2 Corinthians. And so here in 520, he's calling the Corinthians to be reconciled to God. He's afraid that they're about to abandon the gospel. And we can see this concern more explicitly then as the letter unfolds. And so at the end of Paul's letter in chapter 13, in the very last few verses before he signs off the letter, he says this, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. And so Paul is concerned that the Corinthians, who he labored over and he taught the gospel to and he uh, proclaimed uh, the good work of God's salvation, are being seduced away from the purity of the gospel and are going to fail the test. All right, so that's the historical situation. Paul is concerned the Corinthians are on the verge of apostasy. Now, this raises though an important theological question which is the second point of our sermon here. What happens to the Corinthians if they apostatize? What's really at stake here? So now we need to think a little about a little bit in this theological section of our sermon about the doctrine of eternal security. And I want to encourage us to broaden out our doctrine or our understanding of eternal security. This may be a term that you're familiar with if you've grown up in church. If you're new to church, you may not know this term. But, but if you grew up in the kind of the circles of which Calvary has been a part of, this will be a term that's familiar to you. And the doctrine of eternal security teaches that believers are eternally secure in Christ. Sometimes this is referred to as once saved, always saved. Sometimes it's stated as the idea that you can't lose your salvation. And the doctrine of eternal security is what many of us grew up with, and it's what I was taught as well. And I'm hearing some amens uh, to it. And there are biblical doctrines of this, biblical versions of this doctrine, but there are also sub-biblical versions of this doctrine. And it's the bad version of this doctrine that I want to talk a bit more about and see if I can't help us fill out a biblical understanding of this doctrine. In the bad version of this doctrine, the doctrine of eternal security teaches that once you've been baptized or prayed the prayer or walked the aisle or whatever term or concept one uses for conversion, it doesn't really matter if you apostatize. It doesn't matter if you abandon the faith. So according to this version of eternal security, once your legal debt has been paid in full, you've got a blank check that covers every future sin, even the sin of apostasy. So you can become a Christian, and then later you can quit Christianity, you can become a Muslim, you can even become an atheist. And as far as your salvation is concerned, it doesn't matter because you are eternally secure. But however much we might want that to be true, that's just not simply what the New Testament teaches. All throughout the New Testament, there's the right amen there. All throughout the New Testament, we see the biblical authors warning their readers about the eternal consequences of walking away from faith in Jesus. So I'm going to just read some passages of Scripture, make a few comments here, but this is just a smattering of passages of Scripture where the authors of the New Testament, many of them in situations like Paul—we'll read some more from Paul—who have started churches in other communities, and they're writing back to the churches that they started with admonitions and warnings. And one of the themes that shows up many times in the New Testament uh, documents or the New Testament epistles is a concern about their churches being seduced by false teachers into apostasy. And so this is a common theme that shows up. So I'm going to read some of these passages of scripture. Paul addresses this in his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 15. He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Or another church that Paul started in Galatia, which I already mentioned, he writes this, They were struggling with a very similar uh, false teaching. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, if you follow these false teachers and abandon Christ, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Or the book of Hebrews, which the entire book is dedicated to calling uh, the recipients of the letter to hold fast to the faith and to not abandon Christ and to go back into Judaism. The author of Hebrews writes this in chapter 10. He writes it a number of places, but here's a good portion from chapter 10. He says, "'Let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering. For if we go on sinning deliberately,' And by sinning deliberately, in the whole context of chapter 10, he's talking about apostasy. So if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries of God. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Therefore, the author then writes, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure of him, in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And then Peter... Also another apostle, he planted a church, started a community. He wrote back uh, to those that were from that church, and he was noticing the effects of the false teachers in and among them and how it was re- seducing uh, many of his uh, congregants away from the purity of the gospel, and they were apostatized. And he writes this about those who are apostatizing. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in them and overcome... The last state has become worse for them than the first, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. The apostle John, writing to his communities, writes this, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and and the Son. And finally, the last epistle in the New Testament is the Epistle of Jude. It's a short, uh, just one chapter uh, letter, and Jude is contending uh, with the false teachers that are there in the community. And he says certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And so this is just a smattering of the passages in the New Testament that would be commonly referred to as warning passages. And these warning passages are warning the earliest Christians about what happens if they apostatize, if they abandon their faith in Christ. And what's clear in these passages, and again, the ones that I haven't read, this is probably only 20% of all the passages that could be read from the New Testament. What's clear from these passages in the New Testament is that the stakes are ultimate. The apostolic writers are not concerned that the folks in their churches will simply get a few less jewels in their heavenly crown. They are concerned that the folks in their churches will forfeit their crown altogether. This is the concern that Paul has in 2 Corinthians, and it's why in 5.20 he is calling the Corinthians to be reconciled to God. He's calling them back to the truth of the gospel. And as the rest of 2 Corinthians unfolds more fully, we're going to see a bit more urgency uh, and concern as Paul tackles this more directly. But here's a question for us. How do we put All of these passages that I've just read and put together Paul's concern in 520, how do we put these all together with the truth of God's free grace in the gospel? Because at worst, it might sound like the scriptures are saying, God has patience up to a level 10. But if you go beyond that, then he's going to smite you. And if God's patience and forgiveness has a limit, let's make it even level 12. If it has a limit, how do we not spend our entire Christian lives stressed and anxious that we've exceeded God's patience? All right, well, two thoughts on this. First, the concern in these passages that I've read, and the concern, Paul's concern in 520, is not the Christian's struggle with sin. But apostasy, abandoning the faith, those are not the same thing. All of us struggle with sin in various ways. And particularly when you read through Paul's letter to the church in Corinth 1 Corinthians, there's all sorts of sins that they're struggling with. But those aren't the things that are concerning Paul about whether or not they're apostatizing, whether they're abandoning Christ. It's the willful rejection of Christ and the abandoning of the whole entire Christian religion. This is the concern that Paul has, and this is what apostasy is about. So all of us are going to struggle with sin in various ways, and we're all in different points of process. So we have sins that just kind of bedevil us and hang on to us, and we can't shake them off our leg, and it seems like they're there for an extended season. So if you are a sincere and honest Christian, and you're struggling with sin, well, don't worry that you're going to out-sin God's forgiveness. God's capacity to forgive exceeds our capacity to sin. So Jesus taught his disciples to forgive each other 70 times seven, which was essentially a way of saying that there's an endless amount of forgiveness that is required of us, right? And this was an expression of God's endless forgiveness. And so we can rest assured that Jesus isn't asking us to be more forgiving than God. God's capacity to forgive exceeds our capacity to sin. But here's the second thought on these warning passages, and this is where I want to maybe focus more of our thought, is that we may need to adjust, some of us may need to adjust the way we think about the nature of saving faith, God's work of redemption, and the doctrine of eternal security. So in 2 Peter chapter 2, the apostle Peter likens God's work of redemption in Christ— with Noah's work or with Noah's redemption in the ark. So think about the story of Noah. All right? The world in Noah's day had become so wicked, so violent, that God decided to put an end to all of humanity with the big flood, except for Noah and his family. And so God provided an ark of redemption that Noah and his family could take refuge in So that they would be spared when the flood waters of God's wrath came upon the world. So the ark was the guaranteed redemption for Noah and his family. But the flood lasted 40 days and 40 nights. And what would have happened if halfway through the flood, Noah had jumped out of the ark? To jump out of the ark would have been to jump into the wrath of God's judgment. So, Noah's redemption was contingent upon holding fast to the salvation that God was providing through the ark. This same pattern can be seen with Israel's deliverance out of Egypt. In the last great plague of deliverance, God sent the death angel to strike down all the firstborn of Egypt. So, the Israelites are in Egypt. Things are going bad for them. God sends Moses as a deliverer to deliver them out. And Moses brings plague after plague after plague to release Pharaoh's grip upon God's people. But the last great plague is the the plague that will break Pharaoh's back. And God says, I myself will come with this plague. I will come in the form of a death angel, and I will strike down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt. But the coming of the death angel was like calling in artillery fire on your own position. Because the sons of Israel are also living in the land of Egypt, and they too are imperiled by the arrival of God himself in the form of the death angel. And so in order to save the firstborn sons of Israel from God's judgment upon the land of Egypt, God tells the Israelites to take shelter under the blood of a Passover lamb, so that when the death angel comes and sees the blood of the lamb over the doorposts of the house, the death angel will pass over that house that has the blood of the lamb. And the firstborn sons in those houses will be spared. And so Israel did, and so they were spared. But what would have happened if some of Israel's firstborn sons had neglected to take shelter under their blood-covered houses when the death angel came? What if halfway through that night, some rambunctious 12-year-old said, hey, I want to go see what the death angel looks like, and ran outside? They would have been consumed just and suffered the same fate as the Egyptians. It was only as the firstborn sons of Israel stayed sheltered under the blood of the Lamb that they were saved from the wrath of God's judgment. And this is how the New Testament authors think about salvation that God gives to us in Jesus. The world stands under the judgment of God. And in love, God has sent Jesus as an ark of deliverance as a passover lamb to deliver us from the judgment he is bringing on the earth and when we take refuge in him when we climb aboard the ark of Jesus when we take shelter under his passover blood we are certainly and surely and eternally delivered from the wrath of God but if we abandon our faith in Christ and if we abandon our uh, if we lock arms with the world we abandon the one who is our only means of deliverance, nothing is left for us but to fall under the coming judgment of God that he is sending upon the world to do away with sin. So one last metaphor. Imagine you're on the Titanic on the night that it hits the iceberg and it's sinking. And as it's sinking into the icy waters, your best friend who you're traveling with says to you, don't worry, I have a space for us on one of the lifeboats so you jump into a lifeboat with your friend. But then as you're sitting there in the lifeboat and the Titanic is slowly sinking, you begin to lose faith in the lifeboat. You think it might be better to stick with the Titanic because after all, it doesn't look like it's going to fully sink. And so you jump back on board the Titanic But then, alas, the Titanic does, in fact, sink. And as it sinks into the icy water, taking you down with it, you call out to your friend who is still in the lifeboat, I thought you told me not to worry. But when your friend said to you, don't worry, he meant don't worry, provided you avail yourself of the means of deliverance that is being offered to you. But if you abandon the sole means of deliverance, then there is nothing left for you but to perish. And faith is not a one-time decision that secures an arbitrary reward of grace from God. Faith is holding fast to Christ, who is Himself the reward. He is the reconciling grace of God. So when God gives us the reward of faith and He gives us His endless grace, it is Christ. And we can't let go of Christ And have the reward and the grace, because the reward and the grace is found in Christ. So we are eternally secure in Christ. We are not eternally secure apart from Christ. And the false doctrine of eternal security wants to present a doctrine of eternal security that has security apart from Christ. But there is no security apart from Christ. There is only security in Christ. To let go of Jesus is to let go of the grace of God and the only lifeboat of redemption. So this is Paul's basic mindset when he writes to the Corinthians and why he's imploring them to be reconciled to God. He's imploring the Corinthians to stay on the ark, to keep sheltered under the blood of the Lamb, to stay in the lifeboat. All right. So now what's the practical application of all this for you and I? Well, Very simply, the practical application is don't apostatize. That's the practical application. (laughs) Now, the fact uh, that you're here is a good sign. You're not apostatizing. But the message don't apostatize is for Christians because non-Christians don't apostatize. Non-Christians can't walk away from Christ. Right? It's only those who have started, who have put their hand to the plow, who are thinking of leaving Christ. That's where the message of apostasy, don't apostatize, has to be preached. Right? So we need to preach this message of don't apostatize to believers. Now, I don't know where you are in your faith. Maybe some of you are waffling or teetering on the edge of apostasy, Maybe some of you have grown up with a false version of eternal security that tells you apostasy doesn't really have any eternal consequences. And that's true of you Then I would just say to you, take seriously the warnings of Scripture. To throw away your faith in Jesus is to throw away your only hope of salvation. Now, I think there are any number of reasons that people are tempted to apostasy. And I can't speak adequately uh, to all of them in a single sermon. But in this last section here of the sermon, thinking of some of the application, let me note four common reasons for apostasy. After the sermon, the first sermon, people were coming to me with other reasons for apostasy, and then I would have to add like a five, a six, a seven, and eight. But we just I only got room for four. All right. So four. Kind of common reasons that that lead to apostasy. Let me just try to offer a few brief responses to these. Just going to trust that the Holy Spirit's going to pick up whatever I say here and bring that to bear in your life in ways that would be useful. But I think one of the reasons we're tempted to apostasy is because we think there is something better. And in many respects, this was a bit of what was going on in the church in Corinth. These false teachers were offering them something better. They were being seduced by worldly glory. That's not quite the same apostasy that we're tempted with today, but but we too can see the glories of the world. And then the tempter comes along to us and whispers in our ear that we could be doing a lot better in life if we unshackled ourselves from Jesus, who is a bit of a ball and chain. That our social life, our finances, our careers, our whatever, would all be a little bit better, would be more glorious if we stopped letting Jesus clip our wings. And the thing is, you know what? That might very well be true. Maybe your earthly life would be more glorious if you cut yourself loose from Jesus. Because Jesus didn't come to improve your social life. He didn't come to grow your bank account. He didn't incarnate into human flesh to advance your career. He came to conform you to the image of Himself so that you could participate fully in His own divine joy. And when we trade the glory and the joy of Jesus for the fading glories and the cheap joys of this world, we are trading Our heavenly birthright for a mess of earthly porridge. Or as C.S. Lewis says, we're giving up a day of making sandcastles at the sea for a day of making mud pies in the alley. And Jesus makes it plain from the start when he calls us to himself that coming to him will inevitably cost us some earthly glory. You will have to give up some of your mud pies. Now, I don't know how many mud pies or how much. That's up to Jesus, and he leads all of us different in different ways in that. But listen, here's the thing. You're going to have to let go of your mud pies anyway. None of us take our earthly glories with us when we die. Death sunders us all from the best of our earthly glories. And as Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, but then lose your soul? There is nothing better than the joy of Jesus. And that's why he calls us away from the fading earthly glories to the true lasting glory that is him. Earthly glories can't bring us lasting joy and peace. So don't be enticed away by what seems better, by some shiny new object. All of those things rust and decay and fall under the sovereignty of death. Hold fast to your faith in Jesus. He is the true and lasting joy. I think a second reason people are tempted to apostasy is because Christianity can just be plain hard. It's not always the case that we're seduced away from Jesus by something bigger and better. Sometimes staying a Christian is just plain hard. And that was true for the folks in the New Testament letter of Hebrews. The Jewish Christians to whom the New Testament letter of Hebrews was written, they were were getting socially pummeled by their non-fellow Christian Jews, their non-Christian fellow Jews. That's what I want to say. So when Christianity first starts, it starts within Judaism. So all the initial converts to Christianity are Jews. And so eventually there develops two communities within Judaism. There's the Jesus-following Jews and the non-Jesus-following Jews. Well, the Jesus-following Jews are the minority, and the non-Jesus-following Jews are the majority, and they have all the political power. And eventually, the non-Jesus-following Jews begin to oppress and suppress the Jesus-following Jews. And it just gets harder and harder, and some of the Jesus-following Jews are losing their social standing. They're even losing some of their property because of their faith in Jesus. And it just seemed easier for many of the Jesus-following Jews to just go back and become regular old-fashioned Jews. to leave Christ behind and just go back to following Judaism without Christ. Now, I doubt that any of us here this morning are being pummeled by the Jewish communities of Oak Park and River Forest to be tempted to go back into Judaism. That's not where we're going to go for our apostasy. That's where the folks on the New Testament might be tempted to go. But many of us are being pummeled by our social communities, our progressive uh, secular social communities. And perhaps some of us are tempted to go back into the secular liberalism out of which we came. Because listen, being a Bible-believing traditional Christian can be hard in our culture. And you high school and college students on secular campuses, you know this to be true better than probably any of us. And perhaps amidst all the social pummeling, you're just not sure if Jesus is really worth it. But what I would say to you is Jesus knows the path that you are walking, and he knows what it costs you to hold to your faith. And he knows also your limits. So as Paul tells the Corinthians, as they are wrestling with apostasy in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, says, God's not going to let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. He will give you a way out of it. So I know it's hard, and Jesus knows that it's hard. But don't give up in sharing with Christ in his sufferings, because it's in your identity with Jesus, in his suffering, that you are opening up the windows and doors to your soul so that the light of God's grace can flood into the dark places of your heart. So don't close off a self-protective, closing down, shuttering the windows and closing the doors. Right, to protect yourself and leaving Jesus behind. You're cutting him out of all the places in your deep, deep places of your heart that need to be healed. So don't lose your heart amidst the trials of this life. Hold fast to your faith in Jesus. I think a third reason we can be tempted to apostasy is because we we no longer find Christianity or we increasingly no longer are finding Christianity intellectually or existentially credible. And Sometimes a person just quits believing the truth of the gospel. You've read stuff in your science book, or your psychology class, or your philosophy class, or you went to college and you took an English lit class, which nowadays is pretty much just another name for philosophy class, and you don't see how Christianity makes intellectual sense anymore. Perhaps you've had experiences of suffering and loss. Or you know someone who's had experiences of suffering and loss. And you don't understand, if God were real, why that would have happened. So increasingly, you don't know how to make yourself believe in something that just doesn't make sense to you anymore. And I can't solve all of your intellectual problems in four minutes, and if we sat down and had four hours, I probably still couldn't solve all of your intellectual problems, But the intellectual and existential problems that you might be wrestling with are not new. You're not the first person to ever have asked the questions that you're asking. I can say for myself that I I really wrestled with intellectual and existential questions throughout much of my 30s for a long season, probably about five years or so. And I understand how challenging that can be. But Christianity has satisfied some of the greatest minds in human history. And if you sit patiently with your questions, God will bring you the answers that you need. One of the verses that held me fast during my season of intellectual doubt and confusion was John chapter 6, 68. So in John chapter 6, Jesus is giving a hard teaching, and many people are following him, but after this teaching, a lot of people didn't understand it, and they began to leave him. And so Jesus turns to the 12, his disciples, and he says, are you going to leave too? And Jesus asked the 12, "Are Jesus asked, are you going to leave too? And Peter, speaking on behalf of the 12, says, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And Peter didn't say... No, Lord, you're making good sense to us. I mean, we're totally tracking with you. I don't know what those people are. They don't understand. Like, we, are, we understand this. We're with you. He's saying, we don't really understand you either. And they didn't understand, right? They didn't understand, which becomes clear as the Gospels unfold. But what Peter's saying, but we do understand that we don't have any other options. It's you or it's nothing. And so we're staying, even though we don't understand And back when I was really wrestling intellectually with my faith, I couldn't think of anything else to replace it because death is the great reducer of every human ambition. Everything that can be offered as an alternative to faith in God, it all perishes. Either there is a God or life has no meaning. That's the end of the story. But if there is a God, then maybe Jesus really is the revelation of Him. And it turns out, He is. So ask your questions, take your time, but don't give up seeking after God. Hold fast to your faith. Even if you don't understand it, continue to embody it and live it out. Let your faith be demonstrated in your actions. Jesus will give you the answers that you need in due time. And then this last reason, perhaps, that some of us could be tempted to apostasy. We just sort of drift away. Sometimes it's not the lure of something better. It's not the difficulties of faith. It's not the intellectual and existential crisis. We just sort of gradually drift away. Not a conscious decision to reject Christ. It's just one decision after another, after another, and just drift away. In Hebrews chapter 2, again, the whole book of Hebrews is largely written as an epistle to keep the readers from apostatizing. And the first time the author mentions apostasy is in Hebrews chapter 2. And he's explicitly warning them, and this is how he begins his letter. We must pay much careful, We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And the word he uses for drift away gives us the image of a man wading out into a river. As long as you're near the bank and your feet are grounded, you're okay. But if you wade out too far and you lose your anchor with the ground, if you swim out into the current, the current takes you, and suddenly when you look up, you've drifted away. Maybe drifted too far to overcome the current to swim back. I think that's the danger that I'm perhaps most concerned about since COVID. It seems that so many people have just sort of drifted away. Prior to COVID, they used to go to church every week or most every week, and then COVID hit, and at first they watched the services online, most Sundays. and some Sundays, it was hard to get up, and if we missed it Sunday morning, we'll just watch it later Sunday evening or Monday evening. And then they didn't. And then watching online most Sundays turned into watching online two Sundays a month, which turned into one Sunday a month, which turned into we'll just re engage with our faith when the church opens in person. It's just too hard to do it online. But then church reopened in person, and now it's, you know, sleeping in on Sundays is actually kind of nice. And now it's been two years since they've been to church and they've gone so long without spiritual food that they've mostly forgotten what it tastes like. Maybe that's a needed word for someone here this morning who is drifting away. They haven't gotten so far into the current that there's no way to get back. But they're heading that direction. And you're here this morning or you're watching online, and maybe this is one of your one times a month that you managed to check in with church. Be careful lest you drift away. You don't know exactly when you're drifting, when you've crossed the line, when you can't swim back. I think we're more prone to drift away when we don't think that anything is really at stake. But this morning, I would say to you, the Holy Spirit would say to you, Awaken to your peril. Let me read the rest of Hebrews chapter 2. I'll read verse 1 again, but then we read the next two verses that come in Hebrews 2. Therefore, we must pay close, much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution... How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The answer is we won't escape if we neglect such a great salvation. There is only one name given among men by which we must be saved, by which we can be saved. To let go of Christ is to let go of our salvation. So don't drift away. Don't neglect your great salvation. Hold fast to Jesus. Now let me end with a final word of comfort and hope here. It's because Jesus is holding fast to us that we are able to hold fast to Him. As Paul says in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. If you have placed yourself wholly in His care, that he will keep you in the ark. And he will keep you under the blood of the lamb. And he will keep you in the lifeboat. Yes, you do have to stay in the ark. And you do have to stay sheltered under the blood of the lamb. And you do have to stay in the lifeboat. But as Paul goes on to say in Philippians 2, it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. So this morning, if you have no sense of the dangers of apostasy and you perhaps are on the verge of apostasy, then awaken to your peril. There is no salvation outside of Christ. But if you are worried about the dangers of apostasy, then be comforted in the truth that God loves you and He's working for your good to keep you by faith in the salvation that he has offered to you freely in Christ. Father, thank you that you have given us Christ, who is our reward, who is our grace. And God, thank you that he holds on to us and that that is our hope. So God, I pray you would both awaken us to the need to hold fast to Christ and also cause us, Lord, to rest in the truth that Christ holds us. Help us to keep walking in faith down the road that you lead us, trusting in you and following after you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.